If you were just getting started in computer vision and robotics, is there a particular challenge that you just couldn't wait to take on in the field? A major hurdle is to have truly comprehensive and principled approaches to characterizing the performance of AI and machine learning mm. system. See, I was convinced you were going to say a robot that could get you a beer while you're watching the Steelers game. <laughs> no? No. <laughs> no. Welcome to the GeekWire podcast. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. This week, we explore the state of the art in robotics and artificial intelligence with Martial Hébert, Dean of the Carnegie Mellon University School of Computer Science in Pittsburgh. A veteran computer scientist in the field of computer vision, Hébert is the former director of CMU's prestigious Robotics Institute. A native of France, he also had the distinguished honor of being our first in-person podcast guest in two years. He visited the GeekWire offices during his recent trip to the Seattle area. As you'll hear, our discussion was also a preview of a trip that GeekWire's news team will soon be making to Pittsburgh, revisiting the city that hosted our temporary GeekWire HQ2 back in 2018. We'll be reporting from the Cascadia Connect Robotics, Automation, and AI conference with coverage supported by Cascadia Capital. More details on that trip soon. In the meantime, here is my conversation about the future of AI and robotics with Martial Hébert of Carnegie Mellon University. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me. You are the Dean of the Computer Science School at Carnegie Mellon University, but you have a long history in computer science and specifically in computer vision and autonomous vehicles. Why are you here in Seattle? Can you tell us a little bit about how you landed here for this particular West Coast trip and, and what you're doing? Well, working in that field, of course, we have to collaborate with a number of partners, a number of industry partners. And uh, so this is the purpose of this trip, to establish those collaborations. We enforce those collaborations on, on various topics, essentially around AI and robotics. GeekWire, four years ago, spent about a month in Pittsburgh. It was part of our HQ2 project, as we called it at the time. It was a little bit of a spoof of Amazon's mm -hmm. HQ2 search. And in fact, we are going back in early May as part of the Cascadia Connect Robotics Automation and AI Conference sponsored by Cascadia Capital. And I, I know the Computer Science School at CMU is involved. Yeah, we, we are actually partners in this, uh, in this conference and very much looking forward to it. This will be an opportunity to really showcase what is happening in Pittsburgh and, to your point, what is happening over the last uh, few years. It has been four years since I've been back to Pittsburgh, since our team has been back to Pittsburgh. It's been too long. <laughs> yes, it has. It would have been sooner, I think, if not for the pandemic. What can we expect? What if somebody did a time machine from 2018 to 2022 in terms of what's changed in Pittsburgh, computer science, the technology scene? Well, some of the um, largest companies, let's start with that, the self-driving company Aura, Argo AI and so forth, uh, are expanding quickly and successfully. The whole network ecosystem of robotics companies is also expanding quickly. But in addition to the expansion, there's also a greater sense of community. 
Uh, this is something that has existed in uh, in the Bay Area and in the Boston area, mass robotics and those kind of things, those kind of organizations for a number of years. I think what has changed over the past four years is that our communities through organizations like the Pittsburgh Robotics Network, and I assume you have a chance to meet with them when you visit Pittsburgh, has solidified a lot. Okay? And so now I think now we, we truly have a, a community, not just a collection uh, a great collection of companies in Pittsburgh. We have an actual community that's solidified around that. The last time we were there in Pittsburgh, Uber was all around doing their tests, and they've since folded that into Aurora. Aurora, Aurora yes, yeah. and Aurora and Argo are now the the two. Yeah, it's kind of consolidated into those two. How much? Activity are you seeing literally on the streets of Pittsburgh these days in terms of self-driving vehicles still? Do you still see the cars around? Uh, yeah, occasionally we see the cars around. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. And is that still one of the leading applications or the most promising applications of computer vision and autonomous systems, self-driving cars, or, or has that slipped a little bit in, in the past few years? You know, I, I think it's one very visible Potentially very impactful in terms of, of obviously people's life in terms of transportation, transit, and, and so forth. But you know there are other applications that maybe are not as visible that that can be uh, also quite impactful. So for example, things that revolve around health hmm. and uh, how to use health signals from the various sensors that various companies have on watches and rings and whatever. Those have profound implication potentially. If you can have a small change in people's habits, that can make a tremendous change in the overall health, including in, um, in terms of the economy. So not thinking in terms of how visible, how obvious the application is. That's the one I just described is something you don't see, almost by definition, right? Nothing's happening. Yet it may change people's behavior in a way that's going to transform the health of the nation. Possibly. You were, for about five years, the director of the Robotics Institute at CMU, which is a renowned institute and has made many breakthroughs in the field of robotics. You're obviously the dean of the computer science school now. What types of advances are you seeing today in the field of robotics that you would describe as cutting edge in robotics and computer vision in, in your area of expertise? Can you give me a sense for the, the state of the art and what might be new in 2022 in your field that we wouldn't have seen in 2018? Let me give you an idea of some of the uh, themes that I think are very uh, interesting and promising. One of them has to do not with robots or not with systems, but with people. And it's the idea of understanding humans, understanding their interactions, understanding their behaviors and predicting their behaviors and using that to have more integrated interaction with AI systems. That includes computer vision, but that includes all of the other uh, aspects as well. So that's one aspect that is, uh, that is important. And in fact, if you look overall at the activities, not just in robotics, but in the school, that idea of having uh, the people factor, if you will, is expanding rapidly and is touching basically everything that we do. Other aspects in, involve basically making those uh, systems practical and deployable. So, for example, being able to uh, learn from minimal amount of data, right? We've made fantastic progress over the past few years in various learning techniques based on deep learning and related techniques. But 
much of that relies on the availability of very large amount of data and curated data, uh, supervised data. So a lot of the work has to do with reducing that dependence on data and having much more agile system. Uh, so those are kind of themes that uh, emerge and that I think are very important. I listened to a talk that you gave in the past on the subject of sensing humans and using machine learning, computer vision to predict and understand what people are doing on one of those trends you just mentioned. And it seems like that could be really applicable in the classroom in terms of what systems are doing to sense how students are interacting and engaging with content. How much is that happening in the technology that we're seeing these days in the classroom? So, so there's two answers to that. There's a purely technology answer, which is how much information, how much signals can we extract from observation? And there we've made tremendous progress. And certainly there are systems that can be very performant there. But the second answer is, can we use this effectively in interaction in a way that improves in the case of education, the learning experience. Now there, we still have, I think, a ways to go to really have those systems deployed, but we're making a lot of progress and at uh, CMU in particular, together with the learning sciences, we have a large activity there in developing those systems. But what is important is that it's not just AI, it's not just computer vision. It's AI, computer vision, that technology, plus the learning sciences, plus Learning, not in the sense of machine learning, learning in the sense of learning science. And it's critical that the two are combined. Anything that tries to use this kind of computer vision, for example, in a naive way, can be actually disastrous. So it's very important that, that those disciplines are linked properly. I can imagine that's true across a variety of initiatives in a bunch of different fields where in the past, computer scientists, roboticists, People in artificial intelligence might have tried to develop things in a vacuum without people who are subject matter experts, and that's changed. Yeah, so in fact, that's an evolution that I think is very interesting and necessary, which is to go from AI and machine learning as a set of tools that can be applied to a problem. And, you know, you have data, you have a problem, you just take your favorite AI machine learning tool to something that is really combined with another discipline. In my example, the learning sciences. That is very different because now what that other discipline is, is integral part of the AI and machine learning development, right? So for example, we have a large activity with the Heinz School with public policy at CMU in understanding how AI can be used in public policy. So for example, planning, intervention in public schools, for example, or infrastructure repair, or things like this. That's an area where one could be tempted to say, well, I have data, right? I have my favorite machine learning box, black box there. I can just plug in the data in the box and, and that's going to give me with the right objective function that's going to give me what I need to optimize, whether it's learning outcome in public schools, for example. That is pretty much guaranteed to lead to really bad outcome. The reason for that is that it does not take into account the specificity of the problem. It does not take into account what is that data? What are the inherent bias and problems with that data? What are the impacts of the decision from the system? Everything that goes around what that system is about. So 
that initiative tries to understand what that is, what those constraints are, try to formalize this. And of course, that can be done on a case-by-case basis. So I gave the example of public schools. So you could write something about that. But then that doesn't scale, right? What you really want is to extract general principle and tools on how to do AI for public policy. And that in turn converts into a curriculum and educational offering at the intersection of the two. And that's uh, critical. One aspect of that, uh, another example of that is machine learning systems that are based on uh, human-generated data. So those could be, um, you know, job evaluation, product evaluation, surveys of various kinds, or even in the medical field, some uh, medical questionnaires and things like that. All of those share in common subjectivity, bias, and by that I don't mean statistical bias, I I mean human bias, error. Uh, missing data, and so forth. If those are treated purely as generic data, right, it will not take into account that specificity. It will not take into account the human behavior that went behind creating that data. And it's critical to take that into account. And it's hard. How do you convert the, the kind of thing that I just said into algorithmic, into computational, into mathematical things? So, you know, those are a couple of examples where just using my toolbox of AI and machine learning and just throwing it over the fence to a problem is is just not going to work. It's important that we make clear the limitations of AI. And I think there's not enough of that, actually. And it's important that even for those who are not AI experts, do not necessarily know uh, the details of the technical details of AI, it's still important to understand the limitation, what it, what it can do, but also, importantly, what it cannot do. After we recorded this episode, CMU announced a new cross-disciplinary responsible AI initiative. See a link to more information in the show notes on this episode. Coming up next, where Martial Hébert would focus if he were just starting out in AI and robotics. Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. Earn a respected accredited degree that propels your career in the IT field. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. If you were just getting started in computer vision and robotics, if you were at the beginning of your career, or perhaps if you were a, a CMU School of Computer Science student, is there a particular challenge or problem that you just couldn't wait to, to sink your teeth into and, and to, to take on in the field? Yeah, so first of all, it's very hard uh, <laughs> at this stage in my life to imagine that I'm just starting. You know, it's something I try to do. It you and me morning. both. <laughs> yeah, so I try to do that when I get up in the morning and when I go at night, but uh, it's uh, it's very difficult. But yes. I guess I'll give it a try. But it's still tainted by my thinking yeah. now, unfortunately. So it's uh, uh, one, one thing that I think is a, a major hurdle and a major uh, challenge is to have truly comprehensive and principled approaches to characterizing the performance of AI and machine learning mm. system. And 
evaluating this performance, predicting the performance. So think about it this way. When you look at classical engineered system, whether it's a car or elevator or something, behind that system, there's you know a couple of hundred years of engineering practice. That means what? That means formal method, formal mathematical me- methods, formal statistical method, but also best practices for uh, testing and evaluation, mm-hmm. uh, formal practices. This entire body of knowledge that we call a kind of engineering science, right? We don't have that for AI and ML, hmm. right? At least not to that extent. So, for example, how do you validate a system or characterize a system, the performance of which depend not just on the correctness of the software or the hardware, but depend on the data that was used to train it? How do you do that when you know that that data might change over time? Hmm. Uh, how do you do that when you don't even know how to characterize how well that training data matches the observed data. I was talking to one of the places we visited yesterday, and that's a key research area, sometimes called distribution shift. It has all kinds of technical terms. It basically says what I'm seeing now is not within the universe of what I was taught to do. Hmm. Right? So how do you recognize that? How do you have a system that properly recognizes it? So all of those issues, now, there are techniques for doing those kind of things, but there is not yet, I think, the uh, kind of body of approaches that everybody agrees on that, that we can use, right? Yeah. Um, so th- that, that's basically this idea of going from the components of the system all the way to being able to have characterization of those entire end-to-end systems. So, that, so that's a, a very uh, large challenge. Now, of course, uh, many People are addressing this. In fact, there are national programs from all of the uh, national agencies looking at those those issues. And of course, all of the companies that we mentioned, especially in self-driving, but the others as well, uh, are looking at those problems. But that's a central challenge. Another way to say it is that the progress in individual component, like an individual computer vision problem, let's say, is accelerating exponentially. I mean, the progress is tremendous. But being able to characterize the resulting system and its performance characteristics, its performance envelope, is not the, is not progressing as quickly. Mm-hmm. See, I was convinced you were going to say a robot that could get you a beer while you're watching the Steelers game. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no. This is obviously clearly a very complex computer science issue, and that speaks to you solving these things that are fundamental to all of the other challenges that you're going to face in terms of the applications of the technology. Yeah, yeah well, that goes to the to what I said earlier about the limitations. Right. And, and maybe it's because of, I don't know, maybe it's my nature or something to look at the, uh, not pessimistic, but the um, the less positive uh, thing, right? So the less the positive thing is that we, we are having unprecedented and to some extent unexpected development on the those individual components. On the less positive side, we still don't have the support to handle those those components in terms of characterization. So that's where I'm coming from in answering yeah. that way. And I think that's critical to go to the stage where you can have the kind of thing, the, the beer delivery robot that you're talking about, truly reliable and trustworthy. We'll be right back with some final thoughts from Martial Hébert, Dean of the Carnegie Mellon School of Computer Science. What have the past couple of years been like as an educator and as someone who's leading this computer science school, 
How have classes been conducted at the School of Computer Science at CMU? How are they being conducted now? And have things been implemented that will be different permanently? Give us a sense for how remote learning and in-person learning have shaken out for you. Well, like everywhere else, we uh, first went into a full remote position. Then we went to a hybrid position with classes being taught both in person and remotely, which is something that we discovered, perhaps in hindsight, that was obvious, is extremely difficult to do. And now we're progressively back in person. To your question as to how hard it was in terms of leadership of the school and all this, that was not nearly as hard as for the teachers on the ground. We have to recognize, and I don't think we explained that enough, how hard it was. Uh, that period for the teachers uh, and for the students. This was very, and for the staff, uh, you know, coordinating the programs and so forth. This this was very difficult. Uh, everybody has to had to figure it on the fly, basically, including things that in hindsight did not work. And in fact, you know, like some of the hybrid experiments and things like this. Students in the classroom and yeah, on so, virtual yeah, platforms. So, so this all was very uh uh, difficult, and I know in the school, for example, our uh, uh, instructors and staff performed spectacularly, actually, under under these uh, circumstances. So, so we learned a lot of lessons as to what works, what doesn't, and all that. And of course, we learn new opportunities, perhaps, uh, in terms of how we could deliver new programs in different ways, reaching uh, students that we cannot reach now. But we learned also that we need to proceed carefully. We're not going to say, oh, this was wonderful. We could take uh, all of our classes on Zoom or, or we have this program. We can now do the equivalent program fully remote. No, we, we, we're not doing that. We're proceeding carefully, but we're learning from experience on both sides, basically. So, for example, looking at how to take our existing programs and maybe have um, smaller slices, like certificates, things like that. Oh. Maybe things that are partially remote. So we're basically exploring the entire spectrum of possibilities, carefully, again. Why didn't the hybrid experience work? Yeah, I, I shouldn't say it does not work. Got it. That, that, that's too, too, too broad of a statement. I think it's much harder, and it requires a lot more work than one would have expected, because it's simply difficult to provide the right attention, the, the right interaction to both types of students, right? mm-hmm. both cohorts of students, in a consistent fashion. Some of that is technology. Uh, some of that is uh, simply uh, learning science issues, right? Some of that is, uh, you know, just interaction, right? Just human interaction. So not that it's impossible, but certainly it was, it was difficult. I remember in 2018, the area called Robotics Row in, yep. in Pittsburgh. How has that changed over the past four years? What can I expect when I'm walking through there? And by the way, we were there in February. So one thing I know I can expect, hopefully in early May, is that there will be no snow and ice, I hope, although you never know. But apart from that, how much have things actually changed in terms of the activity there on Robotics Row? Well, of course, a lot more uh, companies and uh, and a lot more activities. I'm I'm not sure how visible it will be uh, when you walk through Robotics Row, but it certainly will be uh, visible once you interact. Uh, with those uh, personnel of those those companies and the leaders uh, is this sense of community that I was talking about, which existed already uh, four years ago, of course, but is much stronger now, I think. And and there's really a sense of of a community of, of robotics companies in in Pittsburgh working together 
and that's something that I hope you will you will be able to uh, to sense uh, when, when you visit. Thank you very much for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. And I hope to see you when you visit for the conference. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Martial Hebert is Dean of the Carnegie Mellon University School of Computer Science in Pittsburgh. See the show notes for related links, including his research in the field of robotics and computer vision. And stay tuned for more on GeekWire's return to Pittsburgh in the weeks ahead. Thanks for listening to GeekWire. Kurt Milton produces and edits our show. Daniel L.K. Caldwell wrote and performed our theme music. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. We'll be back next week with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast.